Hey everybody, it's time to uh, think biblically about everything, or at least try to, <laughs> at least make an effort, which is more than uh, can be said for, you know, lots of things and places and situations. So first question for today, question oh, number one, here we go, got my little uh, bomb controller here, just kidding, it's just the counter, there we go. Um, this is an anonymous question that's about being content and it's about coveting or desiring sort of a materialism type of temptation going on in a person's life. Why is it so hard to be content? I've been blessed with more than most people, but I'm always wanting more. I drain so much money buying more stuff. And once I see something I like, I'm bummed slash stressed until I get to buy it. I don't want to be this way. Please help. Um, well, let me, I mean, I hope I can offer you some real tangible help. So we're going to talk about some big picture stuff, just kind of like a mini Bible study on the idea of coveting or desiring material things. And then we're going to, uh, give you some practical advice. So just tips based upon specific teachings and scriptures that you can apply in a very hands-on way in your life. So here we go. It's a little mini Bible study on coveting as we start our 20 questions video. You guys can be loading your questions in the live chat. I know you already are. I see it flying by. If you're not sure how to do it, just look and you see the people doing it there. <laughs> you can copy that. Um, <clears throat> okay, so here's some big picture stuff. Um, we are called to not covet. This is actually one of the Ten Commandments. But there's debate over what it means. And it, it is, sometimes it can be a little fuzzy, like what exactly is being said here. I mean, it can be. I, just walk with me here. Let's get clarity as we go through the rest of Scripture as well. So Exodus 20 verse 17 says, You shall not covet, right, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's uh, wife, his male servant, female servant, ox, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, well, transferring their cultural experience to sort of ours, you could apply this to his social status, his his home, his car, um, his job, uh, all, all those sorts of things, his spouse or her spouse, obviously, it would apply both ways. But that's the idea. You know, it's actually one of the Ten Commandments, kind of a big deal. Um now, the New Testament includes this idea of coveting on lists of sins and even lists of people who will not inherit the kingdom, the covetous. They will not inherit the kingdom, whatever that is, covetous. Romans 7 highlights it as one of the major sin issues that Paul personally had his eyes opened on as he looked into the law. He's like, hey, if the law didn't said, if the law hadn't told me don't covet, I, I wouldn't really have understood that. I'm paraphrasing here. My my interpretation wouldn't have understood the depth of this sin issue, but when it when it said this, I realized, oh man, I have wickedness inside of me because I'm constantly dealing with this problem, and so it's a big deal. Now, some people will say the Exodus passage I just showed you, it refers to coveting to take. In fact, um, Dennis Prager did a video on the Ten Commandments. Did videos on the Ten Commandments. One of them was a video where he says that this 10th commandment, it refers to not just desiring your neighbor's stuff, but actually making a plan on how you're going to take it from him. And I think that that is a way of sort of narrowing the coveting down and making it um, something that doesn't really apply to most people's lives. And it turns it into the command, do not steal. <laughs> so it's do not, do not steal. And then later, do not covet becomes do not plan on stealing. <laughs> so I think this is a mistake. Um, there are some people who take that angle and especially in light of the rest of the scriptures and how it uses this term, I don't think that we can limit it to that sort of thing. Um, others will say you can covet, you can covet like a beautiful wife, a, a beautiful, you know, beautiful and, and rich husband. You can covet riches. You, as long as you're not coveting, coveting your neighbor's riches, 
and spouse and car and all that. So I can covet a Lamborghini. I just can't covet my neighbor's Lamborghini. I mean, where I live, nobody's got Lamborghinis. But <laughs> I'm just saying, right? Neighbor in the broad sense, other humans. Um, <clears throat> this also, I think, is a way of narrowing it. It would apply to that, but it wouldn't only apply to that. And I'm going to show you New Testament scripture that shows you it's, it's a bigger issue than just desiring. It includes desiring what others have, but it's bigger than that. So Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This, For this to make sense, Jesus can't just be talking about your neighbor's stuff. Because he's, he's not saying here, hey, don't covet your neighbor's job. Go out and get a good job on your own. He's not saying that because he then follows it up with the error of covetous thinking is that your life consists, the fullness of life consists in the abundance of stuff you possess. That error in thinking is still present in the person who goes after riches, but without desiring anybody else's riches, he just plows and plows for his own to get wealthy and rich, to buy a giant house, to have lots of cars and things like that. Um, that person who's pursuing that, in fact, not even just pursuing it, but desiring it, desiring it. I want wealth. I want more stuff. Um, that's the person Jesus is talking about. They make the error of thinking that their life consists in the abundance of the things they possess. So there's actually a lot more scripture we could talk about here and we will. Um, another example of this that I think follows on the heels of what Jesus is saying is Jeremiah 2.13. Jesus here um, talks about this error in thinking, assigning too much value to the value of material things. And then Jeremiah uses an analogy of broken cisterns. And I, I always remember this verse. It stands out to me a lot. So it says here, my people have committed two evils. God speaking about his people, Israel. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, waters, that that's one of the evils. The second one we'll talk about, which is they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, in the in the direct application of Jeremiah 13, to not take any scripture out of context here, is talking about idols, like a, a idolatry and that sort of thing. But the principle of, of idolatry, the New Testament tells us covetousness is idolatry. So there's a connection here. But um, the broken cisterns, so there's, there's, there's two different ways of getting water back in the day. You would dig a well, and a well accesses a, a, a fresh water source underground, or you would dig a cistern. A cistern is a closed container in the ground, like you dig it into solid rock, and you fill it with water. So you go to the well, and you bring it, and you fill up the cisterns. And the value of a cistern is not that it gives you access to fresh water, it's that you store water there. You, you're the one that brings the water. But the cistern has to hold it and contain it for long periods of time in a good quality state. Broken cisterns don't do that. A broken cistern is you dig the whole cistern out, you don't realize there's cracks in the rock, and as you pour water in, it just seeps out. So the picture here, which would be really driven home to this to their culture and their community, but also drives home to my heart, is people who, instead of looking to God to supply their needs and take care of them, right? he is the fountain of living waters. They turn to idolatry and other, th which is connected to covetousness, right? Because you have idols for whatever thing you're coveting. You've got the idol for for that thing, and um, <clears throat> and what they do is they they go away from God, who just gives them abundantly all they need, all they truly need, not just the things they feel they need. 
and they have to dig these cisterns, these idols, and they keep pouring in and pouring in and pouring in and the idols just keep emptying so that you pour your money and your time and your energy into trying to get the things that you think will make you happy in a materialistic sense. In the end, those things give you less and less return on your investment and you feel empty and it's it's worthless. So I think that this connects to the idea of materialism. The, the big highlight here from Jesus is this does not bring you the satisfaction you think it will. Uh, let me share with you another verse, Ecclesiastes 5.10, our little mini Bible study on, on coveting. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Um, Ecclesiastes does this, this a lot where it talks about life as you ignore the kingdom of God, you ignore God for the most part, and you just live, whether that's atheism or really just functional atheism. A lot of people are functional atheists. They live their lives as if God is something to not be worried about or thought about or considered or or focused on. Um, and so this, this, this individual in that lifestyle, they love money. It's never going to satisfy you. Uh, you love wealth. Your income is never going to actually satisfy you. And we've heard this story over and over again from rich people who feel like their bubble burst. They thought when they got this much wealth or maybe this much fame, famous people, um, that it would bring them more joy, more satisfaction. And it just, it just wasn't worth very much in the end. It had value, some value, but it wasn't worth very much in the end. And it didn't satisfy the, the needs of a human. That's the problem with covetousness. I heard one pastor say, is a sin against yourself? I mean, it's also a sin against God. We shouldn't remove that fact. But it is, it is in addition, there's like the sin, the sin against myself where I'm, I am uh, ignoring God here because that materialism always ignores God in some way. And I'm loving the things of this world and the things that are passing and things that can't satisfy me. So I'm doomed to dissatisfaction. That is... When I covet, it's it's because I'm materialistically unsatisfied with the things I currently possess. And because I covet, I will always remain unsatisfied with the things I possess. Even if I get the stuff I'm thinking will fill my hole. It's a, it's a, um, let me give you an analogy for, for you guys. There was this book I read when I was a kid. I think it was called The Phantom Tollbooth, I think. Um, and in the, in the book, he is a kid going through like an allegorical story. He's experiencing all these different things. He goes to a town or a place or a palace or something where they feed him something called minus soup. And he eats the soup. And the more of it he eats, the hungrier he gets. And so he craves the soup more, the more he eats. But then the more he eats, the hungrier he gets. So he's, uh, all he's doing is he's increasing his desire, but he's decreasing his satisfaction. That's what materialism does. That's coveting. Coveting is increasing the desire for things that won't satisfy you, that will leave you in a, even a decreased state. Um, okay, let's look at Hebrews 13, 15, and we'll talk about, uh, you know, how much are you supposed to be content with as a Christian? Hebrews 13, 15 says, <clears throat> that's not right. 13, 5. It says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Again, you, you can't say covetousness is only about your neighbor's money. It's also about loving money. I see the usefulness of money, right? But do I love it? I see the the, the, the value of, of having uh, the ability to pay for food, housing, to, to have money in surplus to help others. 
all those things are very important, can be very valuable, but I don't love them. That's just a difference, right? I don't love them. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, this beautifulness of this verse is that it gives you the solution to your love for money. You were like, please help me. So here's my biblical counsel to you. First, First one is this. When you realize that the op- the opposite of coveting here is being content with what you have. You're probably thinking being content with whatever car I've got, whatever house I've got, whatever place I'm renting or whatever bicycle I own or whatever feet I get to walk to work on, um, whatever amount of money I've got, being content with that. And there's part of that, but there's a bigger picture here. Here's the Christian secret weapon to being content in all circumstances is for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you see how this, this functions, this verse? Here's the problem. You may you may have the love of money. The solution is be content. And then here's the motivation for being content because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When you look at your house and you're thinking, well, I wish I had a better house or I wish I owned my house. Or, I wish I didn't live in a one bedroom apartment. I wish I wasn't borrowing my friend's room and staying here. You know, um, if, if when you're in those situations, you can say, I have Jesus Christ himself with me. I have God who's with me, who will never leave me nor forsake me. His presence with me gives me, in all rationality, an overwhelming contentment that just obscures the temporary discomforts of this life. And I'm just, it's not that big of a deal. It's just not that big of a deal. That This creates a contentment where I can confidently say, the Lord's my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. This is something where I can just be very content. So let's look at um, this in practice. So here it is in Philippians chapter four, more practical advice here. Uh, Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned, this is Paul, I have learned, have you learned this? This is something Paul had to learn and he wants others to learn it, I believe. Um, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to be, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this idea of contentment can apply to when you're in poverty and it can apply to when you're rich. Uh, Christian contentment doesn't mean you can't be rich. It has to do with your heart towards poverty and riches. When I'm rich, I will not let it distract me from the truth of God as kingdom and seeking him and serving him. And I won't let my heart go out to that wealth. When I am poor, I won't let it take away from me the contentment that I have because Jesus is with me right now because God will never leave me nor forsake me. When I am poor, I will not turn this into an obsessive love for more. I will learn to rejoice in what I have and in the promises I have. When I'm rich, I won't let this turn into um, a replacement for God. I will use it to serve his kingdom. So this, you can be in both situations. Um, it's a, it's a heart attitude. Let's look at another verse because there's so much scripture. Actually, it might surprise you how much scripture there's a lot more than what I'm going to share with you. But first Timothy six has a warning, very practical warning to us about those who desire wealth. And you, you've admitted this is your desire. I'm not putting you on blast for that. A lot of people feel that way. What you do with it now, that's where you can follow Jesus. So this speaks of those who um, imagine that godliness is a means of gain. There's a warning here about certain people who believe that they can use their Christian claims as a way of making money and status and wealth and stuff like that in this world. Um, This is something we see from guys like Joel Osteen and guys like um, uh, um, 
what's his name? Uh, gosh, I think Creflo Dollar, um, at least, at least some of the, I haven't seen much of his stuff, so I don't know, but I've seen some of it where he did that. Others, <clears throat> basically a lot of the TBN guys, um, I'm thinking of the other guy, the, 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 the finger in the face guy, the, the, the COVID-19, I blow you away guy. Kenneth Copeland. I don't know. I couldn't remember his name. Um, there's another example of a guy who, who's very much like this, treating godliness as a means of gain, right? I'm a child of the king, so all, it's all mine. All the money in all the banks is mine and all this garbage. So this is not biblical. It says instead, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If I look at the stuff in the window that I want to buy, the stuff online that teases me, that my heart goes out to, then I think, oh, that's gain. Gain would be gaining that. And Paul's like, no, no, a Christian mentality is to say, being content without that, that's gain. That's where your gain is. When your contentment does not derive from your material things, now you have uh, godliness that is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of this out of the world. That should be a sobering thought. You could spend a lot of time on it, but basically it's all gonna burn effectively. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Now, if you're a godly Christian, you should be able to say that. Well, if I got food and clothing, if I can eat and put stuff on my back, then I, I, I should be content. But those who desire to be rich, and here's the big warning. Not those who are rich, okay? There are people who are rich who don't need it, who don't have this intense desire to be rich. They just have a gift in, in finances, and they've done different things, and maybe they're very generous with it, and maybe they live below their means. Um, so those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. You can be poor and desire to be rich. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul is not pulling punches. He wants to warn you, those of you tempted with covetousness, who it's like more on the higher on your list of issues. This is super dangerous. You're on dangerous, dangerous ground. You, you need to be able to say, I do not desire to be rich. And it's one thing to say, oh, of course I would like, who wouldn't like to be more wealthy? That's, I'm not, but what I'm saying is when your heart is given over to it, oh, sure, it'd be nice to, yeah, have that. But, but I have like this barrier in my heart that says, but I'm not going to desire and focus on those things. I'm not going to make that a, 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 a mission inside of my own heart or something that I'm, I, I worry about and think about and, and that keeps me focused on that issue all the time <clears throat> that that is a dangerous dangerous thing why for the love of money and here's the verse that's always quoted wrong is a root of all kinds of evils um, it's not money is the root of all evil as if money itself is like this evil substance you touch it and it like gets you icky evil juices on you that's not the case instead it's love it's all desire coveting right desire to be rich love of money it's a root of all kinds of evil it's going to open the door to all kinds of sins in your life. Envy and theft and lying and uh, all, I mean, the, the list actually expands as life situations give you more opportunities to sin because of your desires. It is through this craving, again, it's the desire, the coveting, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's, it can't be any bigger of a deal than that. So here's some practical advice. Um, here's a few tips. One, Colossians 3.5 tells you to put to death what is uh, earthly in you, which is, and it lists sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, 
which is idolatry. That's the Colossians 3, 5 is that verse that says covetousness is idolatry. You have to put it to death, which means that you don't tweak it. You actually say, I will never satisfy my desire for more. I will kill it. Right? Stop trying to satisfy and pour water into this broken cistern. Let it run dry. I will just not satisfy it. I will, I will draw a line that says, nah, you can just die. This is a piece of me that will simply not be fed. This is a part of me and my flesh that I'm simply not going to yield to. Another scripture that really applies is Romans 13, 14, which tells us this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me give you a couple examples of how you can make, you're not exactly just sinning by doing it, but you're making provision for the flesh. That is, you're doing things that stir up your own covetous attitude. You're going on social media and you're following uh, influencers who stir up your covetousness because they, they show their flashy lifestyles and they show off all their, whatever it is, all their, whether it's their beauty or their material things that they own and it makes you want it more. You need to stop following those influencers. This seems like it's making provision for your flesh. Um, online window shopping where you just keep going and looking at all the things you want to buy, even though you're not buying any of it, but you just spend hours looking at it and looking at it. You're stirring up the love of money in your heart. This is unhealthy. If you're car shopping, go car shopping. Don't do it when you're, when it, all it's doing is just stirring up desires in your heart. Um, I remember when I was needing a new car at one point and I was looking around to think of what kind of car I wanted to get. And I started to notice, I, I usually don't pay any attention to cars. I don't really care. I, 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 I now drive a, uh, what do I drive? A Honda, used Honda Civic. I'm sorry, Honda CRV. <clears throat> um, at any rate, um, I was, you know, looking into getting a new, a new vehicle and, um, started looking around and noticing all the cars. And so I start, and I have no opinions right now, but now I start noticing, well, I think I like that one. I like the look of that one better. Oh, that one looks more comfortable. That one's really nice. That one look, oh, that would be really fun to drive. Oh, that one's got better speed. And I start cataloging all these things I like and don't like about cars. And I notice for me, my desire for the material value of a car is going up and up and up. And that's when I had to start, okay, this isn't just about what's pragmatically valuable, what's healthy, what's reasonable. This is now moving into territory that's coveting. And so um, maybe stop looking <laughs> and just settle for what's in my what's in my bank account, uh, a reasonable amount I can spend on a car, and then watch out. All this material stuff is dangerous. Okay, there's one last verse, uh, two last verses I'll give you. Long Bible study we've got here on the topic. Long, short Bible study. Short, long Bible study. Something. First Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich, this is counsel for those who are wealthy. Now, you said that you're better off than most. Okay, so as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, so don't be arrogant about it, nor to set their hopes on un the uncertainty of riches. Don't, don't make it so that you only feel secure in life if you still have this big lump chunk of money waiting for you one day but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Speaking of Jesus, right? Your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. The, advance, the uh, advice here that I'll give you, practical advice. So I, I said, don't, don't do social media window shopping and stuff that stirs up these desires. Also, um, following influencers that are stirring up those desires. <clears throat> Another one is give. Take your surplus and give it away 
and donate it to, to, to ministries and people and, and know about those ministries and help those people. When you do that, you will start to see the value of money in terms of how it can help people and it will totally change your perceptions. Psalm 119, 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Um, some translations translate this word coveting, actually. The alternative here is God's testimonies or scripture. Um, so I would encourage you to be in Bible studies, be listening to Bible studies, be reading the word on your own. I think this is a powerful way of combating materialism because as I read the words of Jesus and I look at him uh, traveling around with nowhere to lay his head, like it just drains my heart of any sense of the value the eternal value, the life value of just having more stuff. There we go. I hope you find those things tremendously helpful. Um, it's a serious battle, serious spiritual danger to feel like you're constantly wanting more, more, more. Um, and it's something I, I hope you'll really address for your own sake. Let's go to the next question today. And this comes in from... That is, that did go up. Okay. <clears throat> question two, and I'm going to move... I'll move a little quicker. Uh, Mark Minkin says, my question is, what effect does Psalm 110.1 and Luke 20 verses 42-43 have on the timing or placement of the rapture of the church in reference to the tribulation? Okay, let's let's look at this. And I, I admittedly, I am not settled on some of these issues. Okay, so I'm just going to share some thoughts based upon the verses you've put up. And um, uh, for those who don't know me that well, um, when I say I'm not settled, I, I don't mean I'm going to pretend to be on the fence because I think it's more... Um, uh, diplomatic and I'll, I'll make more friends. I, I really mean I'm unsettled in these issues. Um, I am not sure where I stand. I, I mean, I'm premillennial, so I believe the millennium's coming and the, and I do think the tribulation is, is a literal seven years. I think that's the case. I think that's what scripture's teaching. I'm open to other views, even post-mill view, on-mill views. I'm open to those, but I have a video on going through these different views of, of eschatology as long as you're at least saying, you know, Jesus, there's a bodily resurrection and Jesus is going to judge, um, come back him. He's, he's going to be bodily. He bodily resurrected. He's bodily resurrecting us. And there will be an eternal kingdom in that state. Um, those are like core Christian doctrines. Um, but the timing of the rapture, yeah, I'm, I'm not personally confident. Um, although I, I'm supposed to be, <laughs> or so everyone tells me. Um, okay, so Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Um, this is actually, I think Psalm 110 is the most commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament. Yeah, most commonly quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament, I believe, altogether. Psalm 110. Um, so the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And perhaps you're thinking, well, this would mean maybe that the rapture wouldn't be happening until at the end of the tribulation, because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father until that point. So he can't leave. Um, maybe that's what you're thinking. That might be kind of a wooden way of taking Psalm 110 as if Psalm 110 is saying you are glued in this location and you cannot depart from it until this thing happens. Um, I, I think that might be pushing the passage farther than it's intending, but let's look at Luke 20 verse 42 to 43. <clears throat> For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, in this passage in Luke chapter 20, it doesn't really give us context to make us think that it's talking about the rapture or or that sort of thing. Um, if you just 
I'll just give you the short version. This is not an eschatological passage in the larger section of scripture, right? He talks before and after this about other topics. So all we have is verses 41 through 44 in this particular section. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. How is he his son? Jesus is not here trying to communicate eschatology. Not that this verse isn't, doesn't have impact on that, but that's not the point in this passage. Jesus is talking about the identity of the son of man, of Christ, of himself. And he's saying, you, they want to reduce Jesus to merely being the son of David. And he wants to show he's, he is the son of David, but he's more than that. Because the Lord said to my Lord, see, he's greater than David. Jesus is talking here about his exalted state of being God, his deity. Um, so, th- so these two verses, I think, are awash so far when it comes to the, the timing of the rapture. This is one of my issues with the teaching I'd received, you know, being a Calvary guy for so many years, um, is that, and, and I love Calvaries, okay? <laughs> like, big time approval of Calvary chapels in so many ways, all right? I still feel like I'm still a Calvary guy here. But one of one of the, within the larger acceptance of the movement and the excitement I have about it, um, here's an issue, is that a lot of verses that have very little to do with the rapture are sometimes being brought to talk about that topic. And that is one of the reasons why when I started to study it in more detail, I went, um, some of these proof texts, I feel like aren't really, they're not saying the rapture is wrong, but they're just not really about it at all. And so that is something we should watch out for. I don't want to be trying to use scripture to prove something I already believe. I want to be just taking scripture at face value and letting it say what it says. At least that's the goal. Let's go to question number three. Um, we're full up on questions. I've got all 20 for today. <clears throat> so if you still want to put a question in, you'll have to come back next time and do that. Sorry. We do what we can. Um, Okay, so this is from CW who says, I don't believe Calvinism is biblical, but I find that my prayers for unbelievers often sound Calvinistic. Quote, change their hearts, bring them to you, etc. How should we pray for unbelievers' salvation? Oh, well, um, I I, I don't see. I don't think that sounds Calvinistic, although you could be a Calvinist and pray that. um, But you don't have to be a Calvinist and pray that. You know, you see what I'm saying? You could be it could be either or you could be a Calvinist or non-Calvinist and pray that because Calvinism would be more like this. If, if it was exclusively a Calvinistic statement, Lord change their hearts and bring them to you because otherwise, if you don't do a miraculous transformation of their hearts by your will alone and not by their own, not including their own free will choices, then they will never be saved. Right? But you don't have to say this. You could think that God is reaching out and working in the heart of a person, but then in the mix there, there's still the operation of that person's will, that person's decision-making. So I want both. I mean, God's working on hearts and hearts are responding to him. So it's, it's an entirely appropriate thing to pray. Um, I would pray that. Lord, change their hearts, work in them. Do I mean um, unilaterally transform their wills in a way that is completely deterministic and either is compatibilism or otherwise a rejection of any kind of free will. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not saying all that. I'm just saying, Lord, work in their hearts. That That's a beautiful thing to pray for. And scripture does that as well. Scripture has prayers like that, praying that God would work in their hearts. Um, it also has scriptures that talk about the free will choices of man in response to God. And I think these are both very important. So at least that's my perspective on it. I don't 
divide as a brother. I don't divide from other from Calvinists. I consider my absolute in total fellowship, and we're disagreeing on issues that are not the gospel itself. Um, <clears throat> although some most Calvinists I've found agree with me on that, and some Calvinists would call me a heretic. At any rate, Corey Seitz has a question. Hey, Mike. Um, there we go. Do you think we can have a personal and intimate um, relationship with Jesus as his 12 disciples did? Oh, as personal and intimate as his disciples did. I've heard 1 John 1, 1 through 3 used to support this. This is a really interesting question. Let's, let's go to 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, I'm highlighting these words because Paul repeat, or John repeats them multiple times, which with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So they've heard, they've seen, they've looked upon, which means like to really dwell on and see, not just see, but, but really uh, study in a sense, uh, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the, the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. We're talking about Jesus here. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you, that our joy may be complete. Let me offer one thing that might bring clarity here. The point at which John is writing this he is not in physical relationship with Jesus the way he was when Jesus walked the earth. But he's inviting you to the same fellowship he has, right, that the apostles have. He's inviting you to that same fellowship, but that fellowship is not with Jesus in their presence physically as he was during the three years. I would argue they knew Jesus better after the giving of the Holy Spirit than they did the, during the entire three plus years they were walking with Jesus on earth. It might seem more intimate because it's more physical when Jesus is physically present. But I would say it's definitely more intimate to have the Holy Spirit indwelling you than to have Jesus in your presence. Now, it's not like it's not great. Like we wouldn't all desire to have Jesus like physically here where I could have a conversation with him. Uh, like where there's like literal verbal back and forth. Not that God doesn't show us things, reveal things to us. Not that Jesus isn't communicating to us, even as we read scripture. These are these are intimate personal things. Scripture was written for you. So that these are all intimate personal things. But the indwelling of the spirit is the thing that is the tight, incredible fellowship we have with God that they're saying, we're bringing you that. So in that sense, yes, we can, like there's a yes and a no. Yes, we can have, the same deep, intimate relationship with Jesus that the, that the disciples, the apostles had. But no, that doesn't mean a physical relationship. The deeper one is the spiritual indwelling of God in your own life. That's the deeper relationship. Now, it's not we're not done yet because there will be further depth and intimacy and experience with God as we enter into eternity. When we put aside this flesh, when we stand before his very presence, where there's fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, when he brings us into his kingdom, where Revelation says that there's no need of a son because God himself is the light, like that God's glory shines so fully through every moment. Unlike Moses, who like had to be hidden, hide, hide his face basically from, from, from aspects of God's fullness of his glory. We will just be dwelling in the fullness of the glory of God such that, that, that there's no barrier there. Um, so yeah, you're already there as a Christian. And 
Um, part of it is just recognizing the intimacy you already have with God and not thinking that if, if, if now, if obviously if I had conversational experience with Jesus, that would be a, a delight. That would be everyone's dream. But to think that that is somehow more than the indwelling of the spirit, it is a mistake, I think. So uh, I hope that hope that helps. Let's go to the next one. Number five, <clears throat> Stephen Exley says, why did God tell Moses to ask Pharaoh to go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God if it wasn't God's intention for them to return to Egypt? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting question. I was thinking about this just the other day. I don't recall why um, it was it was on my mind, but literally the same question. Let's just read a little bit of this passage. Um, I'm going to back up a bit so we can get some context. You need to back up a lot. Okay, so here in, in you guys know the burning bush, right? Um, now Moses was keeping the flock in his father, uh, the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the burning bush. That is a Christophany. It's a really awesome thing. I have a video on that somewhere. Um, I'll put it in the, in the description down below later. Um, he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And I just talked about that a little bit. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know they're suffering and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, goat's milk and uh, date honey. Surprise, surprise for you Americans. Um, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. <clears throat> and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. So God hears them and he sees them. He cares. That's Even though they're going through all those hard times, he cares about what they're going through. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay, th this would seem to be that the initial plan here is take them out all the way. Right, because I'm going to give them a land. So, the so I read that much to say the initial plan was from the beginning whole, like you suggested in your question, to give them a whole land outside of Egypt, not just a three-day journey. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But he, uh, he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then God said to Moses, uh, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's interesting that God really wants to be identified with his revelation in the Old Testament. Um, I guess this is a whole side point I won't get into. It's super important that we don't 
unhitch from the Old Testament and we don't separate the identity and purpose and plan and methods of God from what he has revealed in the Old Testament. Remember, through all generations with this connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of the of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So, hey, why is he... Now, just to reread your question, why three-day journey when his plan is to relocate them permanently out of the land of Egypt into this new promised land. Um, <clears throat> so one is the ultimate plan, relocation. This, this thing is the first step in leading to the ultimate plan. Step one, request that you may come and just worship me. But I know the king of Egypt will not let you go. So when he refuses to let you go, even just to worship me, so, okay, initially, when the king of Egypt, his initial altercation with God, God versus Egypt and the idols and the, and the false gods there, it's not about whether or not they will let the people go permanently. The initial altercation, it becomes slightly different. It's about whether God is really God. And that's why the initial re request is just let us worship. Just let us go and worship our God. And Egypt and the king of Egypt are like, we have no respect. Who is your God that we should respect him? Meh. And so it becomes this battle between this sort of um, battle of, of, of spiritual priorities of, of the power of deities between God, the ultimate God, the God of the Bible, the monotheistic deity versus all these Egyptian worshipped deities. That I think is part of the reason why the initial plan is just let us go worship. It sets the stage for a different discussion. Um, it's not just about God trying to take these people, although he's going to do that. <laughs> Initially, it's about these battle between God. Then you get these 10 plagues and the plagues are each targeted after specific Egyptian deities, right? The Nile River and the gnats and the uh, all, all the different things, the darkness, right? Like Ra, the sun god, right? It's, it's targeting the supposed deities of the Egyptians so God can show he is the true God and these are all just false. I hope that helps. It's step one in the plan. It's not the whole plan. Start with three-day journey, and then we'll lead into uh, the whole thing. I hope that helps. All right, let's go to the next question, which is number something. What does that say? Six. Number six. Um, Daniel Binkley says, uh, Chris Valatin? Valatin. Chris, I think it's Valatin. I, I, I'm, I got stuck saying it wrong. You know how that happens sometimes? You say a word wrong and you keep doing it? Uh, not intentionally. So Chris Valatin? Valatin cites Ezekiel 37, 1 through 6, to claim that our prophecies create reality rather than just foretelling the future. Is there merit to this? My wife and I are grateful for your ministry. Well, I'm grateful for you and your wife and uh, the opportunity to get to do this ministry by God's empowerment, um, or it's pointless. <laughs> All right, so Ezekiel 37, verse 1. Does Is it true, as Chris Vallotton, you say, as Chris Vallotton says, um, that this teaches us we should 
claim that our prophecies create reality rather than just foretelling the future. Let's read the passage and let's ask a few questions like, is this talking about all prophecy or God's prophecy? Is it talking about prophecy creating reality or is it talking about God creating or causing things to happen? Is it is it creating reality or is it just causing things to happen? Or uh, Those aren't the same thing, are they? Creating reality is a much bolder claim than causing things to happen. Let's look at uh, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So there's this time of weeping and sorrow. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith, they say. He says, we've broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Uh, this is a prohibition they absolutely had on Israel that is not existent now. The whole idea of Ephesians, the taking down of the barrier and all that. Um, <clears throat> but even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house. Um, I'm reading the wrong passage. <laughs> I'm reading the wrong passage this whole time. It just hit me. I'm like, there's no way this is leading where he, where he said... I'm reading the wrong passage. I'll hear, tell you what, here's a spoiler. If you're interested in this passage and this idea of this mass like divorce moment, the only time it ever happened in the entire history of scripture, I will put a video linked with the timestamp and everything right to an analysis of this passage. I, I totally just, to air is, is Mike. Um, Ezekiel 37, I just typed it wrong and then didn't realize what I was doing. Um, the Valley of Dry Bones. All right, starting over. I feel like such a loser. Sorry, everybody. So does this passage teach us that our um, our prophecies create reality? The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out into the in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So it's the valley of dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Thus says who? Remember this, we'll come back to it. The Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and breathe in, and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Let's read a little bit more. We need this context. So I prophesied and I was commanded as I was commanded. Ah, highlight that as I was commanded. Remember this is very important. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews coming on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath. And how does breath come through his words? So Chris Fallon may say, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. What? Then he said to me, remember that, it's important. Uh, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Oh, remember that. That's important. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied, and as he commanded me, what's that? As he commanded me, remember that, it's important. 
And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So if we take this and say, ah, your words, your prophecies create reality. We're missing some important elements here. First off, that's not creating reality. Creating reality is a term that if we take it as it should be taken, I think in English, it means something different than what he's talking about um, in this passage, what scripture is talking about. This here is he prophesied and then the bones seem to react to the prophecy. I would agree with that. The bones, the, the environment, the circumstances did change, miraculously change. By the way, this is all a vision. So he's not. it's not about him actually raising up literal dead things. This is a picture of Israel. They're the dry bones and God's going to revive them. Um, but there's, there's some really significant things that are different than the teaching that we have. Assuming you're representing Chris here correctly, and I think you are because I've heard them say things. Uh, I've heard people in this community in that group say things like this before. Um, Ezekiel over and over again drives in this thing that he prophesied as God commanded, right? The Lord specifically says to him, right? Say these things. And then he says it in the name of the Lord. Thus, the, thus says the Lord God. Now, Chris Vallotton and others in that movement are fully on record teaching that you can be the initiator of prophecy, that God sort of, and I'll give you my, and this might sound cruel or something or, or, or mean or sarcastic. It's not at all. None of those things. I think this is just an accurate summary of their of their perspective as I've looked at their content. Chris, not only him, but others in that movement is that God has given effectively a blank check of positive goodwill. He wants to heal. He wants to raise up. He wants to make you wealthy. He wants to make you all these positive things. You then can initiate prophecies according to a general idea of a blank check of God just wanting to do all these good things. So then, your words, your prophecies create reality and you can initiate them yourself and that is not at all like what we're reading in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, we're reading about a people who had been receiving prophecies from all kinds of sources that were totally effectiveless. That's not even a word, but they were effectiveless. Effectively. Um, and they... Those prophecies, or in Jeremiah, we have all these false prophets who speak and they speak prosperity. God will bless you, Israel. God will protect you. He will never let Israel be destroyed. Oh, this temple will never be brought down. Solomon built it and God blessed it and his spirit's here and all this. And none of it was true because you can't be the initiator of prophecy and you can't just act like God has a positive blank check of good, good, not just goodwill, like God loves us and wants what's good for us, but of God just sort of, yeah, whatever you want, you just ask and I'm going to do it. Um, and, and that, that would be, you might think, oh, but Jesus, didn't he say that? I have a teaching. I'll link it down below on the name it and claim it verse that people say Jesus gives us. Um, I'll link that down below as well. So only according to the word of God, if you are led by the Holy spirit, where God's telling you now prophesy this, you're just a conduit of announcement of what God's going to do. It's God's will initiates it. God reveals it to you, you simply echo it out loud, and then God's the one that does it. Your words aren't creating anything. Your prophecy itself isn't accomplishing the thing. It's God who does the thing, start to finish. He initiates it, that's against Chris Valentin's teaching, and then God accomplishes it according to his initiation. You were just a conduit through which he communicated it. So, um, so yeah, I would fully disagree with the words create reality. So what what's happening here is a, a transfer from the power, or I should say, uh, not the power, the will, 
from the will of God on when and how and what prophecies he will do and fulfill and give to the will of man. I can simply make a prophecy. And they've, they, they're have they on record with this too. They encourage people that you can just speak a prophecy and if you get it wrong, it's no big deal, no harm done. That's a huge error, biblically speaking. Um, any charismatic like myself, people who believe in the gifts of the Spirit, active today in the church, um, we need to take seriously when people get things wrong. We can't just wash over it because it cramps our style and slows down our prophetic movement. All right, there we go. That's that's my thoughts on that. Yeah, great question. Jay Parker says when Jesus interacts with people, he's often compassionate. However, with the 12, he most often sounds harsh. Does his relationship toward us change once we are on the team? Um... I don't think Jesus was was compassionate in that way that you're thinking. When he interacts with people, he's often compassionate. I think that he's compassionate um, all the time. But but I okay. So when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and calls them a brood of vipers and and, and says that they they travel far away to get one convert and they make him twice the son of, of hell that they are, um, <clears throat> I think that's compassionate. I think Jesus was always compassionate at all times. So I think you're using the word compassionate to be uh, nice, maybe refer to like night or gentleness. Maybe a better word is being gentle. That's probably a more fair term. Jesus was gentle with a lot of people, but he's being more harsh, but harsh can be compassionate. Harsh can be exactly what you need to hear. Um, the, sometimes the person who loves you the most is the only one who's gonna tell you the harsh thing. And the person who's always gonna be gentle with you, um, they're preserving, they just don't want you to get mad at them, right? They don't want your eyeball daggers. And so they're, they're like, I'm always going to be gentle, even when it's not in your best interest, but it's in mine. That can be the case too. So, so I just want to say Jesus was gentle with a lot of people. But if you look at people like the woman at the well, Jesus radically, exp I mean, he's, he's gentle with her in a sense, sort of, I mean, he's not really that gentle, actually, when you think about it. Um, let's just look at the passage. Um, not that he wasn't compassionate because he was so in john 4 <clears throat> here's an example of a passage that where you have a non-disciple right um so he sees the samaritan woman come out says give me a drink she's like in verse 9 how is it that you a jew ask for a drink from me a samaritan woman because uh, they don't usually do that jesus answered her if you knew the gift of god okay so she accuses he shows she's ignorant and who it is that is saying to you give me a drink and she doesn't understand who he is. This would people would think this was condescending. I mean, today, a lot of people would, but they're wrong. Uh, give me a. You would say, give me a. If you knew who it was, it was saying you give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Okay, I don't see this as being gentle. He's really sort of just coming right out there and saying, like, "Hey, there's a bunch. Of, you have no idea. Do you even know who I am?" Is kind of what he's saying here. But it's true. He really is this person. But he's also offering her living water. He's offering her salvation, but he's not doing it in a in a sort of super gently uh, beat around the bushes way. So she asked a question, "Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that? Li where we, where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock." Jesus said to her, "Everyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again, but whoever drinks..." 
the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We see this as gentle or, or compassionate because we know it's true. We know that this water is transformative in, of your life. You're like, I'm transformed. I know God. I'm forgiven. I'm alive forever in Christ. Okay. But it's not like it would have seemed ridiculous to her. Not like, wow, what a nice man. I met this the nicest man at the well today. It wouldn't have felt that way. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Um, either she believes him uh, and she's like, oh yeah, I want that again. But she's misunderstanding and thinking it's physical water. Or more likely, she's actually responding in a mocking way. I think this is probably the case where she's like, ha, ha, ha. oh yeah, well, give me some of that. They don't have to come out here anymore. It, I think she's actually mocking him. Okay, so Jesus not exactly gentle here. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. Is he actually intending her to go call her husband? Not exactly, no. He's he's actually going to be very ungentle here. He's going to expose sin issues in her life. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. Not a compliment. And the one you now have is not your husband. Definitely not a compliment. What you have said is true. Either the one she has now is someone else's husband, or she's just in, living in fornication and not married at all. <clears throat> the woman said to him, sir, okay, so not gentle at all, but super compassionate with, with two sentences or one sentence there, I guess there's two. Jesus does two things. He shows that he is someone with authority. He knows about her private life. So it shows he's a prophet of God. And two, he exposes her sin issues so that she can get off of this high horse that she's on. Um, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the, and that's not an insult. That's in our culture. It is, which is weird. How do we get into a culture where just calling someone a woman is actually insulting? <laughs> There's a whole thing we could do on that woman. Believe me, the hour is coming. Uh, or some people think not calling someone a woman is insulting because if they're not women, um, anyway, Okay, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Then she says this, you, meaning her and the Samaritans that she's part of, you worship what you do not know. This is not gentle. I mean, it could be more harsh, could be, but it's not really gentle, but it's super compassionate. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, not something that a Samaritan wants to hear, but it's something she needs to hear. And the fact that she's like, this guy's a prophet, she's listening now. But the hour is coming now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then she talks about the Messiah and he just straight up is like, I am him. I'm the Messiah. And then she's like, going to go back to town. Tell everybody, come out here. This guy, he knows everything. <clears throat> um, so what I'm suggesting is Jesus was not as gentle as people often think. What we do is we highlight a couple moments of intense gentleness and we think Jesus always did that. And usually people say, well, except with Pharisees. But but like you, like you said, he's also very strong and harsh on the disciples, but he's also harsh on individuals too, at many occasions. So gentleness, um, I, like, I like it this way. I like this quote here. This kind of helps me process it. Um, this phrase, law to the proud, grace to the humble. The, the person who's, who needs more gentleness is the person who's humble, but that doesn't mean they don't need any harsh truths. Okay. Cause sometimes we need harsh truths because we just, someone's got to wake you up. 
Um, and the person who needs more harshness and more of like showing and exposing error is the proud, the arrogant, because they, they're not in that humble place. That I think is a nice principle that I tend to use when addressing individuals, but Jesus was probably not as gentle in the, in the, in the modern sense of beating around the bush when you have to tell people difficult things. He was not as gentle as, as most people think he was, if you just read him in context. So that's actually be my answer there. Um, yeah, it's, there's no one size fits all with Jesus here. Sometimes he's very gentle. Sometimes he's very harsh. Sometimes he's both gentle and harsh at the same moment. And we need wisdom to know how to handle each situation. <clears throat> Number eight, Joel says, what are your thoughts on how to best get back involved with church after you've had past hurts, both done to you and you towards others? Thoughts on going back to the same church or seeking a new one? Well, your 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 situation is going to be very specific. Um, assuming this is even about your situation, maybe it's about someone else you know. But but my advice can only be very generic. So keep that in mind because generic advice may or may not really apply very well to specific situations. So, but here's some generic advice: um, if there's past hurts where I've hurt others, I should first go and repent towards them and deal with that before anything else. I hurt you and I'm sorry. Have you ever done that is a question to ask. Did I ever go to that person and say, I'm sorry for these areas where I failed you and where I was the one that brought you pain and, and suffering? Um, the, um, the idea of others having hurt you, this is where restoration can hopefully take place. If, if you go to others and you tell them and there's serious sin against you that they've done, maybe they're involved in ministry, maybe they're just fellowshipping in the church, and you go to them, like Matthew 18 says, and you you ask them, like, hey, will you hear me out? This happened and this happened, this happened, that really hurt me. I'd like to be restored with you on these issues. But I need you, I need you to apologize. And I need you to admit what happened. That's a hard thing to do. But it is what Jesus told us to do. Look at Matthew 18. Here's an example of, of reconciliation as the heart of what's going on here. <clears throat> if your brother sins against you, not you against him, I mean, obviously, if you sin against him, you have to go repent, but if he sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. See, the agenda here is restoration, so you don't bring in everybody, just one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, it, it's much easier for me to tell other people when you hurt me than it is to go to you and talk to you. Jesus calls us to do the hard thing. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. See, that's the agenda. Gaining your brother is restoring this relationship. But if he does not listen, what if he doesn't listen? Do you just pretend like it's no big deal? No. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So obviously we're talking about a serious sin, something that would be big enough to actually announce to people. Um, he's in real rebellion against God. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Hopefully they'll repent and come back. Um, <clears throat> the um, the onus is on me to go to the person who sinned against me and say, hey, now what if they don't listen to you? Or what if what if the two or three others' life is complicated? Nobody listens to you. Nobody even believes you. The guy's just a good talker and everybody thinks that he's right about this stuff. And you're like, no, this really happened. Okay, obviously you can't do the full Matthew 18 thing. You, you tried, it didn't work. You've honored Jesus and you move forward in your life. But let me read your question again because there's more to it than all that. Uh, number eight, what are your thoughts on how to best get back involved with church after you've had past hurts done to you, both to you 
and towards others, from you towards others. Um, first, uh, my, my general advice would be, for whatever wisdom I've got on this, my, my general advice would be, first, seek reconciliation with the individuals where the hurt happened. Don't just try to, like, collectively serve the church and ignore this gaping wound between you and this other person because if you can fix that wound, if you can at least try to, at least make the effort to, and then say, Lord, I did my part. Maybe it didn't work, but I did my part. Do that first, and now you've dressed the wound, so to speak. Otherwise, it could still infect other things in the fellowship. So getting involved in the church is going to require addressing the individual or the person that's, that this thing is plaguing you. Um, on the other hand, you um, you said thoughts on going back to the same church or seeking a new one. That, that's a hard that's a hard one to answer. My typical advice to people is be very slow to leave a church. If you do have to leave a church, if you do choose to leave a church to go somewhere else, that's allowed. Okay. As a Christian, you're not bound to one physical fellowship for the rest of your life. But the question is, in the event of you going from one to another for whatever reasons, did you leave with bitterness? Did you leave with division in your heart or just a change in location? You might leave a church for a number of reasons. Maybe because of major issues that are going on. Maybe because it's just uh, the, the children's ministry just isn't working very well and it's not a very good place to disciple your kids. And so you, you're like, I love that church. It's just, it just isn't the best for decision for my kids and my family. You know, like there's all sorts of decisions people can make. Um, so th that's just too complicated um, for me to give you an answer on. Um, just guard your heart against bitterness. Make sure that if you do leave, it's not because of anger. It's not because of resentment. It's because this is actually just a wise decision. Even if there was no bitterness, no anger, no resentment, it would still just be a smart thing to move. It would be wise to relocate and go to a different church. But if it just comes down to bitterness, you want to work on that rather than just um, leaving. My general advice, may God give you wisdom on how to apply it to your specific situation. <clears throat> Number nine, uh, John David. Hi, Mike. How is the Holy Spirit not the Son or the Father? And you have two verses here. We'll go through both of them. These verses confuse me trying to answer this question. How is the Holy Spirit not the Son or the Father? So I think the implication is you're, you're thinking maybe the Holy Spirit is the Son or the Father uh, or both. And that would be like oneness kind of idea. So Matthew uh, 10, 20. Um, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. This is a passage where Jesus is talking about, um, how, when they're being persecuted, they'll be given wisdom and words from God in the moment, what to say, and that it won't be them who speak, but the spirit of your father who's speaking through you now. Okay. To me, this seems very simple. This doesn't say, but the spirit is the father and will speak through you. There's no statement of identity here. The spirit of your father. Right now, now in, in Jewish thinking, when they say the, when he says the father, they're thinking God, the father. So it's another way of saying like the spirit of God, right? The father is God. The son is God. The Holy spirit is God, but the son is not the Holy spirit and the Holy spirit is not the father. There's no statement of identity here. The Holy spirit is the spirit of the father. That's also true. Just like Jesus is the son of the father, right? but, but that doesn't create an identity connection that's going on there, that they are the same. 
Um, the other verse is Philippians 1.19. While I'm going there, I'll, I'll just mention, if you read John chapters 14 and 16, just 14, 15, 16, you'll see Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit as different from the Father a number of times in, in, in the gospel. So it's Jesus' own words. And he's like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the Father and I'm gonna send the comforter to you, the Holy Spirit. I'll be with the Father, he'll be with you. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. They're not the same. That's that's in the Gospel of John there. Um, Philippians 1:19. <clears throat> for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Um yeah, so there's a relationship between the Spirit and Christ, some kind of relationship that's there. Does that, let me put it again this way. Here's what the verse doesn't say. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit, who is Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It doesn't say that. It says the spirit of Jesus Christ. Well, when Jesus in the book of Acts, when Jesus ascends to the father, he says, I will send the helper. He sends the the, the, the Holy Spirit. So he's the spirit from Christ. The spirit of Christ and of and from are similar here in Greek. So that's a relationship between the spirit and Christ. Um, assuming that you're thinking this talks about the Holy Spirit, which would be where I would lean. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's where I would lean. Um, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Father, the spirit of Christ. The, the thing about the Trinity <clears throat> is to realize that we're not trying to posit some complete and utter separation as if there were three deities but there is this such connection such unity and such shared qualities between the father the son and the spirit that there is one god there's monotheism is the anchor on which the trinity is 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 held in place right so there is such connection the father is god the son is god the spirit is god so there's this overlap in terminology and things like that that are appropriate there but the Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not Jesus. They're not identified as the same. Otherwise, how could Jesus and John say, I'm going to go, but another helper will come, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. There's obviously differences there. So when you put this all together, you're sort of forced into the doctrine of the Trinity, which many are like, I just feel like I don't understand it that well. I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to understand it that well. You just have to know the Bible teaches it and accept it. And go, yeah, there's a lot I don't understand about the Trinity, but I know that Jesus is God and the Father's God, Son is God, but the Father's not the Son, the Holy Spirit's not Jesus. And I don't really understand it all that well, I guess, but I understand it enough to accept it. I don't understand electricity all that well, but I understand it enough to turn on my computer. <laughs> okay, let's look at the next question. <clears throat> question number 17,000. No, it's 10. Bezalel of Judah says, do warnings to churches and believers in verses such as Jude 1, 3, and 4, or other epistles regarding false heretical doctrines apply to Mormons who want a relationship with God or Jesus but are just deceived? Hmm. So let me restate this in a different way. Um, do the warnings in Jude 1, verses 3 and 4, there's only one chapter in Jude, but in Jude 3 and 4, does that apply to Mormons who, quote, want a relationship with God slash Jesus, but are just deceived? Um, Jude. <clears throat> I 
Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, I love this verse, that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designed for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. The direct application of this verse was obviously people in the first century, but there's people like that that still exist today. And so what are they doing? Um, they creep in unnoticed. So they're part, they claim to be part of the church or they're actually in the body, the local church uh, churches. They long ago were designed for this condemnation. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So they teach people to sin and relate that to grace somehow. That There's a relation to say Joseph Smith here, but not as directly. Um, here's the more, because because he taught polygamy and he took other men's wives for himself. And he, like most false religious leaders have lots of women, right? Most of those, and they're usually men, right? But they have lots of women. Um, that's one of the things like look at Muhammad and look at Joseph Smith and look at these other cult leaders and they're sleeping with all these different women and they go to a, a man and they're like, you know, the God told me that he wants your wife to be my spiritual wife. And they're like, yes. Oh, great spiritual leader. Whatever you say. Um, Jesus never did. Um, <clears throat> anyway, there's this though that applies more, which is they deny our, our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Mormonism, we can focus like you did on the sincerity of Mormons. Mormons who want a relationship with God and Jesus, but are just deceived. Um, but this is a little complicated because it's like, I want a relationship with Jesus. But the version of Jesus I have in my head, not the real one. Then do I really want a relationship with Jesus? I'm, I'm not saying there's no good desires there, but they're so distorted as to not be purely good desires. Like they're just these people who just want to know God. It's like, well, eh, it's not quite that, quite that black and white. Um, the, the, the doctrines of Mormonism deny the nature of Christ, who he, the very nature of Jesus. They, they deny what he fully did for us on the cross in salvation. It distorts things like the garden of Eden and the purpose of the creation of man and the nature of humans. It, it de-exalts Jesus and exalts man to Godhood in the, if you're the ideal Mormon who lives the ideal life, you become a God when you die. This is, um, satanic in the literal sense. Not, I don't mean Satanism. I mean, like of Satan, who was like, I will be as God. Well, he didn't say I will replace God. He's like, I will be like God. I'm going to be equal to God. I will be basically another God like Yahweh, like the ultimate God. And, and that's what Mormonism actually teaches is the, is the, the highest agenda and goal. Although many Mormons will try to back away from this idea, but you can't just come into the 21st century and in the last like 10 years ago, yeah, we're going to minimize this entirely core thing about our theology in order to like build more bridges with Christians. It's like, well, as long as you're Latter-day Saints, you need to connect yourself to Joseph Smith and his actual teachings and your actual writings and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And you can't just um, play play a two-sided game, which, which is what we're seeing with a lot of Mormon theology right now. They're going very liberal as a way of kind of like, I mean, I, I don't think it's going to work. It seems like everybody that goes liberal with their theology even cults um, usually end up dying out and Mormonism is probably going to just keep dying out, I, I suppose. At any rate, can you apply Jew to them? Yes, in aspects of it at least, and other warnings, yeah. 
um, specifically warnings about false Christs, false religions, and um, false prophets. <clears throat> Number 11, anonymous question. My pastor wants me to obey my husband, even when it hurts my mental health, triggers my eating disorder and sleep disorder, or uh, is he right or wrong? He says, die like Christ. Okay, I, I, I'm going to be super honest with you. I cannot touch your question with a 10-foot pole. It is like me meddling in, in complicated matters with a blunt instrument. In principle, yes, every Christian is supposed to die to ourselves like Jesus did. In principle, yes. But you're adding these huge terms here. Mental health triggers eating disorder or sleep disorder. Is he right or wrong? This is way too big of a blanket because my blanket answer here is going to be either you always do whatever your husband says, even if it causes you harm. Or I'm going to give you a, another a, a no answer and that your pastor's wrong, in which case Anytime that you feel it's not good for you, you don't have to follow what your husband says. And neither of those are a right answer. Like those are both wrong. This is the blunt instrument. To answer your question like as on its face is to give too blunt of an answer that will definitely push you into one error or another error. I, this is like, you need a lot of, you need counseling, like Christian counseling who can help you navigate the issue so that you do not become, and I mean, and here's my advice to you, that you do not become either um, the, the person who, um, misunderstands the fullness of God's teaching when it comes to wife submission, where you're just, just submit to every single demand and every single thing and every single submit, 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 as if the entire command to wives is just submit to your husband's end of story, no qualifications, no other considerations, um, nothing else. That would be a mistake. On the other hand, are, this is very much a, a, a modern 2023 20, thing, and it's affecting women, I think, more than men, to be completely open with you. Leading you into a sort of narcissistic, I want to do what I want to do, and I can use, this is a potential error, I'm not saying you're doing this, but it's definitely a potential that you, you should probably acknowledge, at least some people do, where they use their things like, I have an eating disorder, and so when my husband's like, hey, um, I think that you should probably do this and not just you're doing this and that's not right and you should do this thing and that's good Then I go, well, no, you're triggering me. You're triggering me and everything turns you turn into a person with lots of very sensitive triggers uh, This can happen because those become excuses for you to fulfill your lusts and your desires in your own flesh. These are the two extremes Neither of them is right. I Think you need to talk to a Christian leader who can help affirm you when you need to be affirmed and confront you when you need to be confronted because neither of those is 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 the right is the right answer that'd be my my response it, chances are your yielding to your husband is going to require more submission than you would like but not a blanket um a blunt answer either so there's my honest opinion from this tiny little bit I've read about you. Forgive me for any area. Please forgive me for any area where I was just way off, okay? You had a type of little thing. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I should have wrote it this way, and then he would have understood better, and you're probably right. Like, forgive me. Take it with a grain of salt. I'm not judging you. I'm not making decisions about you. I don't know you. <laughs> just trying to answer the question to the best of my ability. All right, number 12. Curious Sojourner says, what counsel would you give a discouraged believer with a debilitating chronic illness that carries a lot of guilt for not being able to serve in the ways that they may want to be able to. Um, 
I guess my counsel would be a few things. Um, one of them is that Jesus doesn't judge us on our output, but on our faithfulness. Um, he knows we all have different capacities and abilities. Um, and any, any of us who've gone through times of being ill, like if you're sick and you're laying there and you can't get anything done and you actually can't get anything done, then you don't actually, you shouldn't feel bad that you can't do anything. Like it, sh it can bother you. I'm bothered that I can't do more, <laughs> but you shouldn't feel guilt ridden as though it is your fault. Like as if a person in a wheelchair who was born crippled should feel guilty that they can't walk. That's weird. It might bother them. They might be like, man, I wish I could walk. That's <laughs> inconvenient. But so they feel bad. Like, I'm sorry, I can't walk, guys. I'm sorry. Like as if it was a decision they made. So if your chronic disability is, is a result of bad decisions you made, then there's some guilt there. And then you take that to the Lord and you're like, Lord, I, I acknowledge it. I repent. Help me do the best I can with what I've got now. But otherwise, if you're if it's out of your control, there isn't even any guilt there. It's just a bothersome, difficult thing. Um, so that's kind of a weird thing, feeling guilt for not being able to serve. Um, Jesus, I believe, does not measure, again, your output, but your faithfulness. What did you do with what you had? Not a question of what did you have. It's what you do with what you had. That's it. That's all. We do this with kids all the time. You don't expect a five-year-old to perform tasks as well as a 15-year-old or 25 or 30-year-old. Um, you know, we understand capacity is an issue. Another thing I would recommend is, um, and I only say this because I've experienced it not only in my own life, uh, just feeling this temptation, but I've seen it in others. <clears throat> uh, th this is, again, just a, a broad thing I'm throwing out there. I'm not accusing you of anything, right? But this might give you a healthy way of analyzing whether you should feel bad or not. Um, there's a certain amount you can accomplish. If, if you're very realistic about that amount and you don't expect yourself to do less or more, then I think that you can have a healthy mentality at the end of the day for whatever you accomplished. Let me try to explain. I had a buddy, who's a friend of mine, lived down the street from me many years ago, who had a major back issues. He couldn't work. He was on disability because of it. And he would always stand there rubbing his, rubbing his back like this. I mean, all day long, he'd just do this when he was standing there with his cane, and he was always rubbing his back. Um, and he actually had worn holes into his shirts where his thumb was right there, just kind of doing this. So he was legitimately disabled. He got injured doing like uh, construction work on, on highways, lifting up a big, one of those big rails, hundreds of pounds, you know, and something had happened where he just messed up his back. <clears throat> During the last few years of his life, he opened up to me and he told me something that I totally had never even suspected. And he had tremendous guilt. And he said to me, um, he's passed away since, but he said to me, Mike, I feel so bad <clears throat> because I'm, I've, I've been disabled, but for years and years, I exaggerated my back pains to get out of having to do things. And then he told me something I never, it blew my mind. I'll never forget it. He, and, and he's my friend. I care about that guy. I wasn't mad at him, but it was sad. And he says, you know, I have holes in all my shirts because I'm always doing this with my back. He goes, I don't need to do that. I do that to send signals out to people that I'm in pain so they won't ask me to do things and so they'll do stuff for me. He felt tremendously guilty. And at the time he was telling, this, <clears throat> telling me this, his condition was deteriorating and he now was in as much pain as he was pretending to be in all those years. 
I think the lesson's obvious. So if you are dealing with disability, chronic things, everyone understands, the Lord certainly understands, and you should not expect yourself to do more than you can do. But you also need to be honest about how much you can do so that you don't fall into the error of using a bad excuse. And if you have a realistic vision of where that line is, of what you can do and can't do, right? Where you could push yourself, where it's it's healthy, it's a healthy pushing yourself. It doesn't destroy you, but it even strengthens you. It increases your capacities because you're not you're not overdoing it and causing yourself more harm. Um, if you have that healthy understanding of where that line is, then you try to get up to that line each day and then you just have no guilt. Yeah. All right, let's go to a question from Voldemort. <clears throat> no, it's Voldemort. <laughs> I really thought I said Voldemort at first. Vol Voldemort. <clears throat> what is the distinction to be made between Jesus and the Bible as far as the title Word of God goes, which is applied to both of them? Ah, uh, um, I deal with this in a video somewhere, and I will deal with it in a smarter way than I, I will right now off the top of my head. But let's just talk about it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the obvious distinction should be that Jesus isn't the Bible. <laughs> it should be pretty obvious. Jesus is not the Bible. Anybody who gets excited, but he's the word, and the word is the word. Oh, um, that's not accurate. Uh, that's an identity issue that you've got there. You're misunderstanding. Jesus is not the actual physical Bible, nor is Jesus the letters written. Um, there's a few serious theological problems with this. For those who try to, I've, I've, I've met many over the years who get excited about that. But Jesus is the word. It is the word. Or, or they'll say something like, you'll go, yeah, but right here in the Bible, right here in the Bible, it, it, it says such and such, you know, and, and I think theology matters, you know, and they go, oh, but it's just about Jesus. And Jesus is the word. So, huh? Vague, vagueness and, and vagaries. <laughs> and you're not supposed to argue about theology after that. Um, that's not wise. Um, but here's one of the problems with that. The Bible didn't always exist. Okay. <laughs> Genesis did not. There was a point in time where Genesis literally didn't exist, where Exodus didn't exist, where Revelation wasn't around. Jesus was here walking the earth when the fullness of the Bible literally didn't exist yet. There was a time when Adam and Eve were in the garden and there was not a verse of Genesis written yet. And the word of God in the physical sense of the collection of books that are inspired by God didn't exist at all. If you think Jesus simply is the word, then you would have to think Jesus didn't exist. That's a serious problem. That's a serious, serious problem. You'd also have to think that Jesus was, there was more of Jesus in existence later on. Um, in addition, Jesus never refers to himself as <clears throat> the Bible or as, as the word of God in the literary sense, in the written sense. He talks about scripture. He goes, in all of scripture, it is written of me. He doesn't say in all of scripture, it's me. <laughs> and this is not the case. When he's walking on the road to Emmaus, he opens their eyes to see that all the scriptures were of him. All the word of God was of him who is the word of God in a different sense. Here's the sense in which it's the same. How is Jesus the word of God in the same way that the Bible is the word of God? is that both of them are a revelation of God. Okay, Jesus, I don't want to minimize him to this, but there's an aspect of Jesus that's similar here. When we have the word of God, we mean something God has shown us, something God has communicated to us. Jesus is the ultimate communication of who God is. He, he says, if you've seen, the, seen me, you've seen the Father. I am so much a revelation of God to you. He can be called the word of God. 
because he's um, standing there to reveal who God is and what God says to us. The powerful, powerful thing, beautiful thing. So Jesus is is like the Bible in that sense. They have similarities, but they're not identical. They don't share the same identity. Um, <clears throat> there's other stuff too in John one, theological stuff about the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him. Um, that's a longer discussion, but but there's a few ways in which there's like a difference between Jesus and Scripture. <laughs> And there's a similarity between them and that they're both a revelation about God. But Jesus is the ultimate. But this is there's no competition here. Scripture and Jesus are... If anybody who uses Jesus as the word to trump the scripture as the word of God misunderstands these things because God has never contradicted himself. He's not inconsistent. There's only going to be a marriage of revelation, uh, fuller revelation going on between scripture and the person of Jesus. Let's go to number 14. This is Jared Matthews. What do we find... What do we do when we find significant differences between translations? And you give us an example here. Um, this is one of the most significant examples, right? So here, let me share with you um, <clears throat> the verse you're referring to. You, you guys, you mentioned First uh, John five seven. Um, this is what I mean by significant difference. Um, for there are three that bear witness: one uh, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. That's in the New King James Version. The King James Version has it almost exactly that same way worded. Um, let's look at, say, most new translations, right? So the NIV, the ESV, the CSB, the, you name it. Most new translations other than the New King James Version. First John 5, 7. For there are three that bear witness, three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. There's a whole section in verse 7 that's just missing. Verse 7 ends with, three that testify or three that bear witness. And then it goes to verse eight. Whereas in um, New King James or others, after there's three that bear witness, it has in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And this has been taken by many as a classic Trinitarian verse that proves the Trinity. Now this is a Trinitarian statement, right? The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. It's definitely not enough to prove the whole Trinity. We need more theology here to, to pack in a bunch of other details and it's not necessary in that we have tons of other scripture that teaches us the trinity the doctrine itself um <clears throat> but here's a massive difference what are we to make of it well most of your bibles if you guys pay attention to this aspect will have footnotes that will explain these things so they'll say something like, i'll read you you can't see it on screen here but i'll read you a footnote that's in say the new king james version it says that um many there are manuscripts that omit the words from in heaven all the way to them being uh one only four or five very late manuscripts contain these greek words this is in the new king james version the version that actually has it, it says only four or five very late manuscripts have these words in greek now without knowing a lot about manuscripts you kind of know what that means don't you oh so so the, the the issue here is does this belong does this verse belong in the bible or not um, some theorize that First John five seven was a, um, <clears throat> a a scribe who was writing in the margins. I've heard this theory before. I'm not saying it's true. Just throw it out there. Um, writing in the margins as they, they copied First John and then they wrote ah and there are three that bear witness in heaven and they just wrote out a theological statement that later somebody was like oh, should we include it or not? Um, there's a whole big drama about how this got into the King James Bible in the first place. And it has to do with, if I remember right, like kind of like a bet between, was it Erasmus and somebody else? 
about whether they could find a text that actually would prove that first John five, seven, the whole chunk belonged in the text or not. Um, anyway, I can't remember all the details. It's a pretty interesting little story. Most the, and I mean the vast, 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 overwhelming majority of, of scholars, Christians who love Jesus, who are fully Trinitarian will say that that, that verse does not belong in your Bible. That is, they're not taking your verse out of the Bible. They're saying, no, um, rather some very late manuscripts added a comment into the text of scripture and that carried into the King James version, but that it was not originally there in the first century when John wrote this book. So here's a difference in translation. That's not about translating. It's about textual criticism. It's actually not even translated different. It's just. One translation says, I don't think this is original, so I'll include it. And they'll include it in a footnote. The ESV or whatever will probably have it in a footnote with a little explanation. So yeah, read the footnotes and they will give you insights into these things. Um, what's the weight of this? Um, well, obviously I want all of scripture and nothing but scripture. Um, and in this case, it's pretty clear. It seems First John 5, 7 is not all original. So in modern translations, they, they usually don't include all that. But also, it has no impact on the doctrine of the Trinity, none whatsoever. It takes away what often people feel is a convenient verse to use to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm like, well, there's like, you know, a hundred, so find another one. <laughs> it's, it's not going to affect your theology. Um, yeah. Read footnotes, read footnotes, read footnotes in your Bible. That's a way to help. And then slowly learn what they mean. Google it. What does this mean in the footnote of the Bible? And learn. Educate yourself. You got this. Number 15, Clemergnus. Clemergnus says, do we know why God chose the tribe of Levi to be the priesthood? Um, I mean, it might just be because Moses and Aaron were sons of Levi. Um, I'm sure there's probably other aspects. I haven't really done a study on that myself. So um, that's interesting. I'm trying to think. If if I guess I would want to go back to, to, to Levi's actual life and go, I wonder if there was any aspects of this. What order was Levi born in? Which 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 son was he in the order? I'm curious now. I'm you've 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 brought up an interesting question. I'd like to know more of that. Um, my only immediate theory is um, that Moses and Aaron were both Levites, and they were um, mediators for the people initially right away during the Exodus, and um, the Levites. Oh, I guess this is this probably does relate. We just read this recently, even on a Q and A. I think the Levites were the faithful ones who, when the golden calf was made and Moses comes back down and breaks the commandments and rebukes the people, the Levites rallied around him. And so it may be that, that this was what set them apart is they set themselves apart for God initially in that one moment. And then, then God carried that forward. That might be the reason now that I'm thinking about it. Just a thought. Robert Thies says, <clears throat> I give my first sermon this Sunday. Any tips or pointers for those going through seminary slash preparing for their first sermons. Um, yeah, I'll give you a few just off the top of my head. Man, you're going to be nervous and that's okay. Focus on the value the message will bring to the people. Do not focus on your performance on how well you'll do and how well they'll evaluate you. Do not focus on their evaluation of you. Focus on the value that these beautiful truths will bring into the people's lives that you're sharing. If your focus is on that, then your nervousness will disappear as you're delving into the sermon. You're sharing these things that you feel are so wonderful and helpful. And it will help you through that nervousness. Um, um, other things would be um, never quote a Bible verse out of context. You will find this very tempting, especially at first, 
because there are a bunch of verses you've probably heard used out of context and you didn't know it. And as you're preparing your sermon, you're like, oh, oh, there's a great verse for this. Every verse you bring in that's a great verse for this, go back and check the context before you quote it in your sermon and make sure you're using it properly. Many of them will fall away. You will find other verses, but you will be training yourself and your people to think biblically about things and not just to hijack verses to say what we want. I'm telling you, this happened to me so many times, especially early, earlier years of teaching, because you have to just constantly be, oh, I can't use that verse for that. That verse doesn't mean that. I didn't realize that. Well, I finally looked it up, you know, <laughs> and this is going to happen to you. Um, do that over and over and over again. Um, prepare more than you teach. Another piece of advice. So you may prepare this much, but you end up cutting things out. Uh, I don't, you know, I do these super long videos online. I'm not going to, we never even try to do a three hour sermon on a Sunday morning. Okay. I'm not even going to attempt that. Um, <clears throat> unless the, the people were somehow wired for it and were happy to have that. What I would do it for a, a, a sermon in person, not like an online thing, which is a totally different platform. I would think here's how much time I have. I'm not going to just prepare 50 minutes of material, 40 minutes of material, whatever it is. I'm going to over prepare and then I'm going to go through my notes and take out and, and, and condense anything that I can so that what, what they're left with is the best of the things that I have to share. Not everything I have to share, but the best of what I have to share. You might be surprised how much I even do this with my ridiculously long videos. So there's some advice for you. Um, your first sermon, um, here's an encouragement I had. Okay. So I stepped into the pulpit to teach for my, my, my pastor back in the day. And it was the first time I was asked to teach and I was very nervous. And as I was preparing my Bible study, I, and maybe teachers will understand this. I felt this, and it wasn't his fault. This was all me. Okay. But I felt this compulsion, like I should prepare a sermon like the ones he gives. And as I was preparing my notes, I was thinking, oh, he would probably like it if I said it this way. <laughs> and, and yet I was thinking, but I think it's probably more like, you know, I think I should say it this way instead. And, um, and I felt like I was like, there's three things I, I want to please. I want the people to, to like what I'm going to say. I want the pastor to like what I'm going to say. And I want God to like what I'm going to say. And what I had to do is I had to eliminate the other two out of my considerations. I want to bless. I don't want to please the people. I want to bless the people. There's a huge difference. I don't want to please my pastor. I, so that he'll ask me again, or so that he'll think that I'm called or so any of those things, this has to be, this is actually selfish ambition disguised uh, and man pleasing disguised as some sort of godly thing. So I went into teach thinking, I'm just going to teach this the best I can end of story. And if the, the leadership doesn't like it, and if people don't like it and don't want me to do it, that's fine. Because then I will know that I didn't offer some deluded version of scripture, some deluded version of teaching or of me trying to express these gifts that I think God's given me. I didn't offer a deluded version that I get stuck in where I keep giving people things I think they expect so that they can give me the approval that I want. Um, and then you're stuck in it because you end up wiring everyone around you to embrace and accept and expect that same sort of delusion. Um, Instead, I thought, I thought this, this really helped me. Hey, if I teach and they think it's terrible and they never ask me to do it again, I'm totally fine with that because I don't want to pretend I have gifts. I don't have, I'm just going to do it and see what happens. This actually liberated me a lot. I was like, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, 
There's my advice to you. I hope you find it good. Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne. I love I love what you do in the evenings. Bruce. Uh, I want to raise my two kids, age seven and nine in the faith. I don't want to push too hard. Any advice? My ex-wife has left the faith, so I feel like it's up to me and God. Yeah, that's hard. Um, I'm not qualified. I don't have kids that age, um, so I, I'm not, uh, and I haven't had kids that age, so I'm not qualified. Um, <clears throat> what I'll say, Bruce, is reach out to ministries and individuals that are focused on discipleship of their kids at that age. And the one that comes to mind the most, actually the two that come to mind the most, I won't leave you empty-handed. Uh, one is Natasha Crane, and I'm going to make sure I got her. In fact, mods, can one of you... Uh, put up Natasha Crane's website into the live chat, Natasha Crane. It's just natashacrane.com. Check out her stuff, her blog and her books, which not only will educate, I mean, you got to start with educating yourself. You, you want to learn how to disciple your kids. They focus on discipling kids at different ages. Um, tremendously helpful stuff. Natasha's a friend and brilliant uh, Christian who can really help you with these things. And the other one is... Um, <clears throat> foundationworldview.com so foundationworldview.com actually provides you with literal curriculum these short lessons that you can use to teach your kids this see the nice thing about a curriculum is it's a set aside time you're not just hounding them every moment of every day um, you're you're setting aside a time where you guys are going to go over this together and it's like has a start and a finish and it has a plan and it's a well put together curriculum and this is the runner the person who runs this is elizabeth urbanowicz i had her on and did an interview with her a while back great content i would highly recommend you consider it so there's two sources i would point you to and i'll put links to those in the description as soon as the stream is over let's go to question number 18 my chaos life i heard a theory that the apostle paul was married and a widower do you think that's relevant and does it have any biblical standing? Um, so here's an interesting thing I heard recently about this. Somebody posted on, on Twitter, because Twitter is where all the all the the cream rises to the top, right? <laughs> that's sarcasm. Um, this guy posted on Twitter that we just need to face it that Paul left his wife for ministry. He abandoned her. Um, where is this all coming from? This idea that Paul had a wife or, or trying to figure out what happened to her. Uh, most people would think she died or she left him. This is where most leaders have said that I've heard talk about the issue. Oh, she probably died. Very, mortality was, was a thing. Um, or she left him because of his Christian faith that divides families sometimes. I should say families, it should never be the Christian that's causing the division. Um, but sometimes families divide over, over, Christ, over Jesus because the other person doesn't want anything to do with it. Um, or with you because of it. So... The reason why we think Paul had a wife, or, or here's what we know. We know Paul did not have a wife when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He doesn't seem to have had a wife at any point during his life. There's no indication he had a wife. But during 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about singleness and he's like, hey, I'm single and I wish everyone was just had the freedom that I have being single to serve the Lord with all I've got. He's very clear he's single in 1 Corinthians 7. He doesn't say he's divorced. It does not say that. It says he's single. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, here's a clue, maybe not a known fact, but a clue. He writes here, 
very strongly of reconciling if possible, if there is a divorce. But Paul doesn't talk about his own situation of having tried to reconcile or anything like that. It's a subtle implication that there isn't a divorce in the past. Subtle implication, not, not, not a competent conclusion. Um, so was Paul a widower? If she died, that would explain that scenario of him now being single. But the question that is, you're probably thinking is why think Paul was ever married? I mean, Paul's like a pretty driven individual. He's pretty passionate about things, you know, before he was a Christian. And then now that he's Christian, he's passionate all the time. It's kind of the way he is. He's a very zealous guy. Maybe he's just always been focused and didn't have time for marriage. That's possible. But it's generally true that Pharisees were required to be married, or at least this is what I've heard. I haven't actually checked historical sources to confirm that this is true. So I, maybe there's <clears throat> correction that needs to be had here. What I've heard sort of spread around by different teachers is Pharisees were had to be married. You had to be married to be a Pharisee. It was part of required requirements. And it makes sense because they believed that the um, requirement of, of being fruitful and multiplying required that everybody have kids. That was a moral obligation um, amongst the Jewish people. And amongst the Romans, they wanted you to get married to have kids so they could feed the military. Um, <clears throat> that's historically true. There was times where they even required people to remarry after a divorce, after a certain period of time, so they could have kids. <laughs> legally like imagine the government you're like you better get married have kids um so yeah okay there's there's a there's a context that suggests that paul would have been married to become a pharisee um is that 100 percent, or were there exceptions i don't know but let's say he's not married anymore no divorce seems implied i would lean towards thinking she died you could think she left him that that'd be my second option but we're not even 100% sure he was married. At least I'm not 100% sure. I would have to do a little more historical research to see if we have reason to think it was an exceptionless rule. Yeah. So what can we learn from it? Um, <clears throat> well, nothing. We're, we're super, super deep in the realm of conjecture. We don't know for sure. At least I don't know for sure that Paul was married. Uh, we don't know why he was single then afterwards, whether it was divorce or death. And so there's not much we can learn about that. When you don't want to put the weight of theology of what I should believe and, 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 and practice what I should do off of like being in the realm of gray conjecture areas. That would be my conclusion there. So uh, Hannah Rika says, when I got pregnant from a non-godly relationship, I finally turned to God and I know he forgave all my sins, but my daughter was born with cancer. Is this a punishment from God? Hannah, I don't think so. Um, <clears throat> now, obviously God can do anything he wants. So could God provide a punishment? Yeah. But I would also trust him to make it clear that it is. I think what you're feeling is just an understandable feeling of, um, I can't believe this horrible thing happened to my child who doesn't deserve this. Like I, I feel like somehow it's my fault and especially being the mom and she was inside of your own body and your body produced her and that you feel like somehow it was your fault. I think that's a natural human response, but I don't think that you should then project this onto God. God must have cursed my child. Look, I was born in some pretty ungodly circumstances, as were probably the majority of the people listening to me right now. God does not, certainly does not consistently do this. Um, is there any reason that, and do you, do you think, Hannah, maybe this will help you. When you see people with cancer, do you think it's always, or even usually because of specific sins they're committing? Or would you probably say, hey, look, unless you got cancer because you were chain smoking or because you did something specifically that caused it, I'm not going to blame you. I'm just going to think you got cancer. It's a tragedy. 
I think that's the right default position. Unless you know of a specific sin that equals this suffering, then you do not assume that that's the case. Um, <clears throat> an example of this from scripture, actually, maybe, maybe scripture, um, will, will help more than the things I've said so far. In John 9, 2, actually, we'll go back to John 9, 1. So in John 9, Jesus deals with a guy who's born with a disease of some kind, some sort of uh, malformation or something, right? He's born blind. So as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they basically assumed, um, like, if you're suffering, you must have done something. This is an assumption most of us aren't making today, but we make sometimes today. Right? Like, okay, in this case, you're like, is this cancer? Did I, was it something I did? So they're like, who sinned this man or his parents? I won't get into the idea that this man could have sinned when he was in the womb. There's, that's a, like a whole, like, from my understanding, there's like a Jewish thing that, not, not biblical, but first century Jewish thing there. At any rate, whose sin caused him to be born blind? I love Jesus's answer because he's like, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And then he heals the man of his blindness. This man was born blind. The question is, whose sin caused it? And Jesus is like, nah, wrong question. It was neither. Now, in this circumstance, God's going to heal him. And, I, and this was a rare moment of God bringing miraculous healing to somebody. And I don't know if God would heal your daughter. We certainly pray that God would heal your daughter. At any rate, cancer does not equal specific sin X caused cancer. It's connected to sin in the general sense that sin in the world brings corruption and we're all experiencing that corruption but that doesn't mean all the sufferings and pains we get are directly caused by specific sins we've committed or our parents committed or something i think you're experiencing an understandable thing but you have to stop um i have a friend who's gone through this and i can all i can say is please stop please stop if this if if you could get out of yourself for a second and you could see yourself and you could look at yourself like if you met someone who was a total stranger who was in your exact scenario and she was beating herself up because her child was born with cancer, even though she's repented and she has given her life to Christ and she's covered by the blood of Jesus and she's following the Lord and she's seeking him, you would cry for her and say, please don't. You're beating yourself up over this for no reason. And it's hurting even your understanding of God's goodness and grace. You need to stop. God didn't cause this, but he's going to be the one who provides you the hope to get through it and the help to to wrestle with all the pain and the anguish that you're experiencing now. That would be my, my advice to you. Let's go to the last question. Taylor E says, should we call out sin in the lives of others, other Christian friends? I had a convo with my pastor about this in regard to cussing. And he told me if we don't have a mutual edification, then it might not be my place. Well, I mean, that's a safe statement. If you don't have mutual edification or relationship where the two of you can build each other up, like you have that open door to talk to them about, about things like that and confront them, um, then it might not be the place. Well, that's true. It might not be the place. So I think that your pastor might be just saying, based on your summary of him, uh, he might just be saying, it's not always your role to call, to call people out just because you see something that you don't like or something that you think is, I shouldn't say don't like, something that you know is sinful and wrong. Well, it's definitely not always your role. Um, 
Imagine if Jesus always called out everything he saw everyone do around him. He's holy. He would just be calling things out all day long, nonstop. Hey, you just thought lustfully about that woman over there. You need to stop that. You just laughed at that guy because I exposed him because you have pride and arrogance in your heart. You're terrified that I'm going to point out the truth of you because you also have pride. <laughs> what if he just looks around and points at people and he just identifies all the sins that are there? Obviously, this is this is not an example we have in scripture. It's not something we're called to do. So what sins do you point out? Um, <clears throat> well, you want to ask, are they going to listen to me? Okay. Sometimes, not always, sometimes you don't bother because they're not listening. How do you know they're not listening? Well, it, life's complicated. So you may have reason to think that you might not. Um, sometimes you call it out even if you know they won't listen because that's the right thing to do. This, there's just no, I don't know any formula for this. Maybe you have, maybe someone out there has a formula. When do you call out sin in others? I don't know. It depends to me, uh, from my own very limited wisdom. It depends on how badly is the sin affecting them? Is, are the, are, the, how important is this sin issue in these given circumstances? Let's say that your friend just found out his mom died hangs up the phone and he starts bleeping and cussing and he's all mad and you're like, man, you really shouldn't cuss, right? In the overall situation, this is not very important. Right? That's what I mean, situationally. How much is the sin going to hurt him or her, the person doing it? How much is the sin going to hurt the people around them? Right. So if you have someone who's doing something sinful and it's destroying their family, I'm much more inclined to call them out and, and talk about it. But then you got to ask about how you call it out. And a verse for this, one of them, is Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken, overtaken, right? Not, not just that he's, oh, you sinned, I caught you, but rather he's overtaken. This is like a significant issue in his life. He's overtaken in any trespass. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. I love every word of this. Restore, because your goal is to bring them back to fix it, not to just... Not to just expose them for the self-satisfaction. Because sometimes we can we can feel just a sense of satisfaction. Like, I called you out. I feel good about me for calling you out. But if my goal is to restore you, it changes my methods. It changes when I do it. My goal is restoration. Um, also, I do it in a spirit of gentleness. So you think, is there a better way I can say this? That's a really important question when you're calling people out. And three, you consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Okay. Is my pride involved here? Is my personal irritation going on here? Or am I really trying to seek to serve the Lord and build people up and help people be restored to him? You check your heart. I think all those things are important. And um, Galatians 6 verse 1 is a good one to memorize for this type of an issue. All right, there you go. Um, and then <clears throat> I was given a bonus request. Tell us a St. Patrick's Day joke. I should have worn my shirt that says Ireland on it today instead I wore my cat glasses shirt. Because um, I'm Irish. Did you know this? I'm mostly Irish. The, ma the, the majority of me is Irish. Okay, when I, which by which I mean my ancestors. Like I'm, I'm American. I'm American. Really. But uh, but yeah, my mom used to always uh, make black eyed peas. Is, is this, is this, do you guys do this in Ireland? I have no idea. My mom would, uh, every year for uh, New Year's, she would make black eyed peas. And uh, this is a food product, not just a band. And she would have me and my sister, and we'd all at least eat one spoonful. And we didn't know why, and she didn't know why. And she's like, it's just tradition, we do it. I don't know why. And it's just the funniest thing. And I think, yeah, tradition. It's, it was not a bad tradition. It was fun. Fond memory, actually. Um, <clears throat> so tell you an, a, a St. Patrick's Day joke? I don't have it. You know, here, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, what I will do 
is I'll link you to a funny, um, a funny video that you guys can check out. I'll put it in the live stream chat as we're closing the stream here. There you go. Uh, it's a St. Patrick's Day uh, video for you that's funny. And I'll put it down in the link below as well. But I'll close this out in prayer. Um, Father, we thank you so much for the grace you show us, Lord. We are so complicated uh, and simplistic at the same time. And we have so many errors and so many things we get wrong. We, um, we just thank you for bearing with us every day, every moment. We thank you that the blood of Jesus covers us freshly at every moment. That your mercies are new every morning. And that we rest on your faithfulness your kindness your forgiveness and may that be the fount through which we give others kindness and grace and forgiveness as well in jesus name amen amen <clears throat> go check out that 